Welcome to Life on Mars, a podcast about technology, entrepreneurship, and innovation. You will listen to stories of the best founders, inventors, experts, and celebrities from all around the galaxy. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Life on Mars, the Mars Space Podcast. I'm Alex Yu and founder of Mars Space. And in this episode, we're going to be reusing another episode, another event from Startup Grind Barcelona, another technical event that we hosted back in the day when we had as our guest Elisenda Bo, CTO and co-founder of Billings, a company mixing artificial intelligence and machine learning to tag and categorize video. They are based in Barcelona. They're half Barcelonan. They're half American. They had to struggle with this in the beginning. They also struggled with the idea of creating a technology that didn't have necessarily a problem to solve back then. They struggled attracting data engineers back in the day and finding the right technologies to work and finding the right perks or how to communicate that they were hiring. However, this company ended up being bought by Apple. So all of these struggles didn't end up in vain. We talked also a lot about being different kinds of CTO, what kind of CTO is Elisenda. And she was mentioning many, many times during the interview that she micromanages. She played herself low, but one of the reasons that we wanted to recover this interview is because we are going to host her again in this podcast. We wanted to provide a little bit of context as to what kind of company they were a couple of years back and what kind of company they are now. So I hope that you enjoy this episode and we will prepare for our upcoming interview with Elisenda Bo. Let's jump right into it. So please, if we can have the music, because we're going to welcome Elisenda like a true rock star. All right, so at the count of three, we'll all stand up and give the warmest rock star applause for Elisenda. One, two, three, give it up, stand up. All right, not bad, not bad. How many times have you been welcome on stage as a rock star? No, but I thought I was getting great. You're gonna, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's got a lot of great people. Thank, thank you for that. that was, that's that's probably the biggest, warmest, and, and the best uh, welcome we can give to our speakers. I'm gonna introduce her briefly. So she's the CTO and co-founder of Billings, an AI company that basically just analyzes videos and is trying to make a more competitive landscape and so that not all the video processing is owned by Amazon or Netflix. They have the AI brain, or they call it like that. They created the company in the US because she had been at the MIT. She's been living, she had been living in the US for many years. She decided to come back to Barcelona. And that's one of the main topics we're gonna to be talking about. So big applause again for Alessandra because uh, we, A lot of people create companies here and they expand there to the US, but you did it the other way around. Can you explain that story? Um, okay. Uh, for us, it was a bit different. I think uh, my co-founder, uh, Juan Carlos Ribeiro, also uh, CEO, CEO of, the, of the company, um, he had already created one company and it was between, um, it was already between Taipei, uh, Edinburgh, Valencia, and the US. So, he was very used to having like, like a lot of different sites for teams and managing all this craziness. And for me, I had been studying uh, abroad and I had, I remember that feeling that uh, when we were like, we were like a bunch of expats there uh, living in Boston and we would meet every week uh, to tell each other stories about Basically, like we're always happy, but we ended up always uh, telling ourselves like all the things that we missed about about Spain and Barcelona and all the like this feeling that we had all like we're sharing something, but it we were not we were not here, right? So um, I remember those dinners, and we were always kind of sad, and we were all thinking, okay, so what are go what are we gonna do next once we finish our studies? Where are we gonna work? Because the only options at that moment were like. You have to be working in Palo Alto uh, for Google or for, uh, for, for any of these big techs. And we were all thinking that, okay, so the only possible option for a career right now is to end up with the PhDs and then go to work for one of these big technological companies or even a startup, but do it in the US. 
And I thought, I wish there were like different opportunities uh, where I live too, because I know like I've been very close with the university. I know there is great talent. I know it's a great place to live, and I have always wanted to live here. So when Mike Fanner and I met, we kind of uh, decided that he would be staying in the U.S., I would be moving to Barcelona, and then we'd have like the engineering team here, and then sales and marketing out there. So the company has raised some funding, and how did the investors take the thing that you were creating a company there but expanding here? Did they see anything wrong there? Because usually most investors in the U.S., they would, they would just tell you to keep the company there, right? How was that greeted by the investors? Okay, so at the beginning there was no expansion because you were like two, fr like yeah. two developers or two founders just crazy from your own home. So who is an investor going to tell you, like, are you living in Barcelona or where are you living? So at the beginning, you do whatever you want. Um, then when we're expanding, it's kind of worst case scenario in both situations, but it actually works out. So for Spanish VCs, uh, like it is very so at the beginning for Spanish VCs it was very difficult to accept that we had people in US and people in Spain because mm -hmm. of course like when you are doing a seed round um, there are certain levels like of expenses like having engineers or having anyone in US is way more expensive than here so for Spanish VC funds sometimes this was more difficult um, on the other hand for US uh, funds. Having an, a team in Barcelona sometimes looked like, oh, you have an offshore development team there. Yeah. And it didn't look great. Bit shady, yeah. But I think uh, there are, like, lately we have, been a lot of, we have seen a lot of success in companies that have uh, this diversification. Because what's going on, actually, is that um, United States is very big, but Silicon Valley is not that big. And we're seeing, like, very deep uh, technological, big technological companies moving there. And it is, it's getting super difficult to get good engineering, good traction, to get good projects uh, in, in Silicon Valley. Because there's so much demand and there are so many startups that it's almost impossible to, to get good developers. So I think uh, like the Israeli model has uh, helped a lot in this sense. And I think that we have, lately we have seen a lot of uh, startups that have had a lot of success by having like the sales team in one place and then the engineering team in another one. And this has actually worked very, very good in our favor. In our case, we do uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning. And finding uh, this, I don't know if you have seen, like there is this comic strip about, uh, I think it's about like a, a person that's uh, on an island by, by, by himself. And he's putting like stones in the, in the beach and he's saying, help, SOS, uh, something. And you see like the, the planes are flying by. And then he thinks about, he, he spends like five minutes thinking and he says, I am a machine learning engineer. And then <laughs> planes just, just land directly to hire him. So the problem right now that we have is... That's XKCD? Yeah, the, the web comic? yeah, it might be, sounds it might like be. it, yeah. <laughs> so what, what happens here is that uh, talent on machine learning and AI, it's extremely difficult to get if you are in the US. However, if you are in Europe, there are not so many companies, or even in Spain, there are not so many companies that are big tech AI. So you, you can attract a lot of talent that's sitting here and looking for amazing like, places to work and amazing projects to work on. So for us, the fact that we're located here helped us a lot to get a lot of talent and attraction from Europe and Spain that I guess like otherwise they might have had to to go to US to work on these like kind of big AI projects. Let's give the audience a full picture. So what is exactly that that you do? How did you come up with the model and was it the right idea from the very beginning or did you iterate a lot of times to get the perfect product? We are a very technological company and this is good and bad. So <laughs> we started working on a problem that we wanted to work on. So everybody's going to tell you this is a completely bad idea. You never want to do that. You want to look for the specific problem that somebody has. Mm -hmm. Then you look for product market feed. Then you do all the work. And then you decide how you're going to solve the problem. We just were a couple of geeks that wanted to make machines learn and, and like live on the dream of, uh, of, a of IG or like AGI. So we were just geeks working on whatever we wanted to. And so we did it the other way around. So it was kind of difficult at the beginning. Yeah. 
because when we were we were we had the, the seed the seed fund was mostly because they were uh, putting money on like this group of crazy people and they're building this. So at some point they will figure out what they're going to do with that technology that they're building. So it was technology first. Well, team later. first, right? They invested in the team as well. Yeah, so, yeah. so, so the business invested in the team. But yeah. for us, it was like technology first. Yeah. Then we'll see what we do with that, <laughs> which is not optimal. No. <laughs> no. And then in the meantime, of course, like you've seen, there is so many, there have been many, many AI startups that also started technology first. We see what we do later. And many of them happen to burn lots of money and have had different levels of success. I'm going to put it like that. And so for us, we wanted to be like technology first, product is going to come later. But we're also Spanish kind of a startup. And our VCs were not like deep pockets in US. They did not have deep pockets in US. So we had to make it work in the meantime. Like, get some things, like sell something in the meantime while you're building this technology that you want to build. So it was kind of a nightmare of a product, what we sell, what are we doing, how we can reuse what we're building for this purpose that we want, and how we can sell it in the meantime so we can get some extra revenue so VCs are not going to kill us. When was the moment when you said, like, well, we've got it now. We're, we nail it. After squandering so many millions from our VCs, now we got it. Yeah, we when never, was that moment? We never saw that moment. I think. All right, not yet. Yeah, no. Right. So for us, right. like, <laughs> if you ask us, like, we would be just developing technology forever. I don't mind. I just want to, I mean, we have a good path to do, like, technology, and we, we would have never said that. But then yeah. uh, I think there was one day uh, we had one of our, our VCs. Uh, actually, what happened is that uh, they, they came to JC and they said, okay, so now that you have done that, now you stop and you, you build an actual company. You, you have to stop this mode. Like you you have reached playing. this. Like stop playing and build a company, please. And so we had to do it. All right. It, it's not that we wanted to. That, that <laughs> we are having a lot of fun. That, that means that you were forced to actually make money and stop playing with your AI toys? Yeah. All right. And how, how did the team take that? Uh, just, it was fine. I think because mostly affected the CEO. All right. Because the engineering team, they keep playing. We, we always play. That's our job. That's good. So, yeah. Seems like you're having fun. The CEO had the worst part. He had to actually like Sell leave engineering and, and work on, on doing like real things. Um, and that's what happened, I guess. We're not going to talk about sales because we're like, it's not very often that we have CTOs, right? So let's dig a little bit deeper into, into technology. And uh, I wanted to ask, um, in this process of not selling, because I assume there was a huge part of the company's first years that you didn't sell, you didn't have any in income. So did you see any moment when it was dangerous for the company and did you have to struggle to survive or there was always like some, you know, more busy funding to come? How did you get extra revenue? How did you bootstrap it? It's a long question, huh? Yeah. yeah. It, it depends on what you consider like. So if, if, I, if I have a team, what I'm mostly afraid of is about the, the jobs that I'm opening and what happens if... Uh, like, I don't raise VC money. My problem is not uh, for myself. I, I don't care that much. Uh, it's for the rest of the team. Like, they're going to have good job offers. We're going to be able to relocate them. What is going to happen with them? Um, at the beginning, since we're just, like, crazy friends doing stuff that we liked, and maybe we would have done it even without getting paid. In fact, we did not get paid for a while. <laughs> and so we wouldn't care. It's like we were playing and we were just having fun. And as long as we could survive, that was okay for us. So there was no real like danger in that situation. It is way more dangerous when you have like 40, 50 people on the team and then you're like running out of money and that's a different problem. Mm -hmm. So when you're small, it's, everything is kind of okay. Um, but you're not that small anymore. No, I mean, when you're bigger, then, then yes, then, then you feel more the pressure. But also it depends on what kind of company you have because you're different. Uh, it's, when you're small, uh, if you don't raise money, if, if you just keep small, so when you're very, very small, it doesn't matter. When you're mid-size, then it matters because maybe you don't get acquired because you're too small to get acquired and maybe you're not having enough like, market traction to, to, to be able to raise the money that you need to raise for, for, to keep surviving. So that's the the problem. 
after you've grown a little bit more, then even if, if it was the case that you were not able to raise money, once you have built a, a good technology team and if your company is, is really technological, uh, you get a lot of offers uh, for acquisition of the team because you, like, it's not that easy to create a 40, 50 people ML AI team. And so at some moment you get acquired. So, so it's, the risk is not that high because you know, like, even if I don't get to raise the money, uh, I could sell the company. And my teammates, they will not uh, run out of jobs. Yeah. So the risk is different too. The risk is different. So how many people are you now and what's the distribution of the roles in the team? So how many engineers have you got? Where are the roles in the company? So we're very, very biased and mm -hmm. it's very uncommon. I think we are like 70% of us are engineers. Right. Uh, so it's mostly an engineering company. We have very little sales and marketing and all that. And um, regarding the engineering team, I'd say maybe 80% or more it's machine learning AI. Wow. And then we have some front end and some back end. How did you find them? Because you, you mentioned that you know, some companies rescue people from islands and they're just uh, lonely there. But there's a lot of companies who uh, actually hire people who just got not even a formal degree, but a boot camp, right? They're just doing this boot camps and they have like three weeks course, six weeks intensive course. And people are so, companies are so desperate that they just hire these people because they think, I'm going to hire 10. If three work out, it's going to compensate. How do you do this? How, how is your talent acquisition strategy? It depends. It depends on whether, like, how quick you want to grow, and if you can spend time into um, how much time you can you can spend on finding right talent, and not only finding but also like figuring out which ones works and which ones and yeah. who doesn't. In our case, we were always very very selective about uh, so about who came into the company. We had two rules. Like the, the interviewing process has only like two ways. Right. You either get like a normal way, which is uh, the team looks at your CV, then you go through the technical interview, then you do the team interview, and then you do a final one, which is regular. Or anybody in the team can directly point at somebody that they know and be like, I want this person to join the team. There, is, there are no questions asked. The guy just gets in, and it's the responsibility really? yes, wow. of the person who has pointed. That worked really well for us. All right. Because they go the extra mile, right? If you're working with a friend, they've been recommended, no questions asked. You feel responsible asked. for him. Exactly. Like, very much responsible. So when somebody, a lot of pressure. Yeah, because right. when somebody points someone else to join, they're, like, they take care of that person like fitting within the company, doing what he's expected to do. Because if he's not going to be performing well, then he puts the other guy in a difficult position. So that kind of recommendation system worked very, very well for us at the beginning when it was key for us to find the, the, right, the right teammates. Do you also give incentives, like economic incentives, to people recommending other potential hires, or just purely the joy of working with a friend? I mean, what, what like, better joy you could have than having a team, uh, your friend, joining the best team there is? I mean, yeah. of course, like... If you feel part of, of, of a community, then you want your friends and, and the people you like to be joining that community. If you like working, we, like people to, we want people to, to like to work in our company. Yeah. So if they like working in my company, then they're going to be recommending it to their friends, which is normal. And then that's it. All right. What happens when it doesn't work? Because... In our company, we don't have this, this policy, but obviously if somebody recommends somebody, we're going to look at him or her with different eyes, right? We're going to be biased. It's like, okay, he's recommending him or her, whatever. It's going to work. They're going to be putting it an extra effort and all that. But once it didn't happen, it didn't happen. It just didn't work at all. It has never How's happened. How's that been for you? It has never happened that a direct recommendation has not worked in my company. You're very lucky. It has never, like a direct recommendation for a team member? No. Hope that doesn't happen. All right, so we. I mean, sometimes, yeah. like, for the, in the regular path, yes, yeah, sometimes it happens that you, yeah, like, sometimes course. it's very, very difficult to, uh, to evaluate somebody in an interview, and then you do three interviews. It's like, I share with you, what, two hours, three hours, and then I know if you're going to be a good fit for the company. That is really difficult, bet. In fact, one of my, 
one of my problems is that sometimes I fear like all the good people that we have left, that we said no. Because you never know, because usually it's like, mm, I have this, this kind of feeling and I don't know for sure, and then you decide not to risk it and say no to the person. But you always like kind of question yourself, like what, maybe, maybe he would have been like a good, a good candidate for us. Let's talk a little bit about you and the CTO role, because as I said, we don't have CTOs here very often, most of all because they have no social skills whatsoever, which is clearly not your case, right? But, uh, and the second is because they're always putting out fires, right? You just jumped into a call 10 minutes ago, an yeah. emergency call, right? And that happens. And CTO in our company is always putting out fires. So you think a CTO is having fun because they test new frameworks, they select new technologies, and they're just like trying React Native and whatever, and like, no. They're just putting out fires every day. How is it being a CTO? It's exactly that. So okay. <laughs> you, just, you just try to like, yeah, work. Uh, it's a bit strange because like most of the time, so I'm not very social and I've, I've never liked talking to people that much. Oh, you're talking to 150 people. That's very good. But they don't talk to me, so yeah. it's kind of, it's okay. They, yeah. they don't talk too much. <laughs> They're not real. <laughs> no, but what I meant is that uh, I didn't like a lot, like, the social interactions. And then I was like, okay, so then I'll go directly to the technical role because it really fits me. You, you, you work with a computer. It's most of the time. You don't have to talk to people that often. It's fine. It's going to be fine. And then you end up being CTO, and 80% of my time, I'm, like, not even, like, fixing fires, but I'm fixing fires between people. Yeah. Like, most of our problems, like, most of all the problems are miscommunication issues. You're figuring out, so somebody had this problem, how I'm going to mentor this person into doing that, how I'm going to... I spent my whole time, like, I'd say almost my whole time dealing with, with people, which was not intended either. But it's because you're scaling the company, and then you, as you grow up, you have to acquire more management and social skills, right? There, I assume there are two types of CTO, more like a sort of VP engineering like that they want to be hands-on. They still code, even if the company is 100 people strong, something like that. And more like political CTOs that deal with this kind of you know, communication, more like management. Even sometimes they do sales or help with, uh, I wouldn't say with fundraising, but some other, you know, with relationships even. So which kind are you, Moraz? To be more like hands-on on the technical side? I think you do everything. So yeah. I have the feeling that, and as you win the respect of, well, first, I'm a micromanager. So I'm going to put it out there. I micromanage. Right. I know my issues. It's not issues. good for the hiring. I'm working on them. Yeah. It's okay. I All accept right. them. So I micromanage. So this means I have to be involved. I review everything, I put a lot of attention to detail, I'm, I'm a pain, I'm a pain. Um, so I still get hands-on, uh, but there is no way you can, you cannot deal with, this, with, the, social, yeah. with the social part. At, at least uh, for me, in order to nurture a team and to make it grow and to make it evolve into what you're envisioning, there are going to be problems and you have to fix them. So you still care about the people? Because you could say like, you know, fuck this. No, I'm no, just no. taking care of the code. No, no, but no. You, you show that you're caring. I love my team. I'm yeah, super great. protective of my team. You don't so like other people, but you love your team. team. Yes, yeah, yes, perfect. of course. I love my team. <laughs> I have to protect them. I have to fight for them. It's all about the team. Uh, but you don't get to... Ch I mean, it's like you put so much effort into building a great team and you're so proud of your team that it's not like you're gonna let it blow by itself. You're gonna put all the effort you can into making sure that there are no fires in production as well as no fires in the team. Otherwise, both things break and it doesn't work. How about, because uh, this thing about the micromanaging, that's very interesting because I, as a, as a founder, I feel it that, you know, as you scale, the lot of tasks that you gotta do, it grows in diversity and in quantity. Some of them, at a certain point, you have to let go. You're micromanaging because you're not able to let go, or is it a, is it a choice? You want to micromanage. No, it's not a choice. I get yeah. criticized for that. Is it because you're learning, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I think my personality is, it's like, it's a personality that I focus on the, sm on the small details. I'm very detail-oriented. I'm, I'm like this. 
So what happens is that I micromanage by default. If I don't control myself, I, mi I micromanage. But also, I have to say that uh, I don't have to. So it's like I, have, like I have team leads that they handle almost everything for me. So when I micromanage, it's because of my, like, my own incapacity to just let it go sometimes. Um, when I started working at, uh, when, when, when we started working in Billings, uh, I remember one of the first things that Michael Fonda said was like, Ellie, you, micro, you micromanage so much, there is no way we're gonna scale. And we said, okay, so when, when I have so many tasks to micromanage that I will not be having the possible time to do them all, then I'm gonna prioritize some of them. But until I've reached that limit that I have no sleep and I cannot do everything, I will keep micromanaging. Yeah, right. Have you reached that limit? Yeah. yeah. Once I reach the limit, like I'm, I'm not getting sleep, then some of the things like just go, just go. <laughs> How did you do it? So which ones did you delegate? Which ones did you outsource? Or which ones did you eliminate altogether? Um, How do you do it? Because everybody has got a different style. I don't know. I think I'm so. It's it's always like. When, when you're a manager, you have to think about, like, every day you see that you think, okay, so how can I manage better? What are, my, what are the things that I do wrong, and how can I improve them? I put a lot of effort into stopping, like, I'm joking all the time, but yeah. I put a lot of effort into trying to avoid micromanaging people. And I really rely a lot on the team leads that we have to take the responsibility. So they take a lot of the responsibility out of me, and they take, they take care of almost everything. Sometimes I feel like... I am only like kind of the cheerleader of the team. I have the feeling that I go to the office and I'm cheerleading everyone, just like, this is the vision, cheerlead, cheerlead something, yeah. and then it gets done. So it's not that I really have to micromanage uh, because they are great. Um, so sometimes I think it's most about what I tend to do is you give them the responsibility and, the, and you're confident that they're going to come and ask you the questions mm -hmm. that are going to be relevant enough for you. So they cannot, be asking me, they cannot be asking me all the time all the questions they have, but I have to rely on them that whenever they reach a question that's important enough to be raised to me, then they're going to do that, that step. And that's what actually like, uh, has been more difficult for me. So... Figuring out, okay, so how, how I can, how I can like, uh, tell somebody that these are the questions that should be passed to me and these are the questions that you can rely on your own. And I'm not the, the one to take that decision because all the questions are different. So they have to think about what they're being asked and figure out what needs uh, to be passed to or discussed more and what is just okay and they, they can just take the decision. So you, on the one hand, you micromanage. On the other hand, you, like, you, you push the people, you cheer them up because you think you, you would fight to the death for them because you really care about your team. What's your management style overall so in terms of communication? How are you as a manager? How would you describe yourself? I have no idea. Oh, you have no idea. Can we ask somebody from your team? <laughs> Is there anybody from Billings here? Because I think there was like, somebody coming. Maybe. Yeah, there might be there. Oh, they're working, right? Yeah. No, no, no. A couple of them are there, but they're, they're not. They're, they're just shy. Saying, they're just yeah. shy. No, because so, one of the things is... To, oh, sorry, you were going to say something. So, no, no. I was just going to say that sometimes like, we, have this, we have this little game, and it maybe defines a bit how, how I manage. So when somebody joins a company, uh, we, try to, we try to do like a, a dinner or a celebration that somebody new is coming. And then when they come, we, we do one thing. So they have to share with the team two different things. One is like uh, the, they have to share a story in which um, uh, they, they have to share, to share a story that they are ashamed, that mm -hmm. they are ashamed of. So they, have a sh they share a personal story that uh, like this is like one of the worst times, worst, one of the worst times of my life. I'm very ashamed of this. And then they share this with the company. And then the second part is they share the special cap capabilities that's unique to them, and they're also sharing with the team. So everyone has like, these things that they are really afraid of sharing, that they, are really, like, they feel like, really weird about sharing. And they also know uh, by themselves, what is the unique capability that makes you special and that you are adding to this team? 
So sometimes we have, we've had like really different set of skills, like very weird. Um, but I kind of think that my management style is, I try to find out the, what people feel more, most uncomfortable with mm -hmm. and also what people sometimes feel like mostly proud of or they think it's their uniqueness. And I just try to find the right place. It's like doing Legos all the time. So you, you just find the right place for everyone that matches the two things that, the, that they have, like the, the ones that they're ashamed of and the ones that they like. We're going to be talking about your superpowers later, but so what's the story that you're most ashamed of? I mean, I assume you share it with your team, right? Yeah, but that's different. <laughs> they are your team. They might be your team. Okay. A lot of people from tonight, um, they will apply for a position at your company because they're hiring. They're they, have, they have, uh, I mean, my team knows a lot of them, but like, okay, so one of them is, uh, I've been to the hospital three times. The three times for the same reason, different times of my life. And the reason was eating too much popcorn. <laughs> I, would, I would feel proud about that, actually, but I, I, don't know. I, I guess it's me. <laughs> so how hands-on are you on the hiring? Let's talk about the hiring, because uh, a lot of CDOs, they are really, really anal about hiring the right people. And I guess that's good, because developers are hard to find. But some of them, they completely delegate that to somebody in the team, to HR person, or even to an external company. So how involved do you get in the hiring process? Did you do the interviews yourself? Yourself? Um, I try to, I usually go in one of the interviews at least. So sometimes the Oops. team. Yeah. <laughs> I know what that happens. It's a timer. Sorry about this. The fuck happened? <laughs> All right. Can we just, uh, anyways, let's go like that. <laughs> We're going to have to, no. <laughs> let's see, puedes poner la pantalla, por favor. All right, yeah, that's good. <laughs> I always have, this always has something happening with my laptop. It's kind of like a thing at our events. Okay. Sorry, you were saying like that you, you go into an, an interview yourself. Yeah, depends. So we have these two different like strategies for hiring. If it's recommended by somebody from the team, I cannot ask any question. He just decides the the, the day that he's arriving, and that's it. We just have the laptop prepared for that person. Um, if it's the regular interviewing process, I try to, to go at least once. How, about the, how do you keep the expectations aligned with developers? Because nowadays, developers, they change a lot of, you know, they change jobs very frequently. How, what actions do you do as a company to not retain them? Retain is a very strong word, but to maintain your team. Then so you host events because you host the, the TensorFlow meetups in your company. Then what other perks do you do? What other activities do you do to, to create a good team vibe? Yeah, I've had very long discussions about perks. We're not a perks company. You're more like so product, right? Basically, we, we might have perks, but we don't put them in job offers. Oh, that's great. We don't want people to join for perks. I mean, we want to treat our people nicely because they're our friends, and I would die for them. But... But basically, uh, we don't hire based on perks. So we don't promote our perks. We don't tell anyone about the perks until you join. That's important for us. I remember one day I was having a conversation with a recruiter, and I was telling him, he was asking me, what do you offer? And I said, competitive salary, even though we're a startup, so not huge. And he's like, OK, which perks? No perks. Okay, so what do you have to offer? I'm like, nice project. Isn't that what everyone wants to work on? Exactly. So we, we try to hire people who believe in our project and who share our vision. So we don't want people who come for perks or for salary uh, because that helps you recruiting short term, but it doesn't help you long term. Exactly. Look so, what happened to WeWork. Perks are gone. They're cutting down on the alcohol. Well, Wait. they have other problems. Yeah, they have a, they have a lot of problems. Not yeah. Gonna... <laughs> Anyways. So, so for us, it's like we don't we don't want to show off perks. We don't talk about if we do an offsite or not. We try to keep this kind of private. We want people mm -hmm. that really wants to do breakthroughs on state of the art on AI and machine learning. If you're not crazy about that, it's not going to work in the long term because 
we all coffee breaks, we talk about this. We spend all like lunch breaks talking about this. We spend dinners talking about this. Sometimes it's like 12 in the office and nobody has had dinner and we're still talking about something. So we care a lot about what we do and we want people who cares as much as, as us. So our hiring process, it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit different, I guess. No, that's great because I mean, one of the problems that we've got when an, an ecosystem is mature is solely like we're having now in Barcelona, but it's been the case like in London, it's been for many years, in the US it's been for many years, is that once everybody has got a lot of money and there's a new startup coming up every week, then they just, you know, all the, the developers leave from, I don't know, from freaking Typeform to Globo to whatever, right, to the next company because it's the cool thing and they have more money, they pay bigger salaries and they have better perks. So clearly there are two types of developers. The ones that they want to have their ping pong table and the snacks and the free beer on Thursday and Friday and the ones who are good developers, right? And they just care about things. And uh, by having this, this tribe of AI-focused people, I think that's ingrained in your company culture, right? How would you describe your company culture at Billings? It's a bit weird. Basically, it's weird. So... <laughs> it's weird because it's a bunch of nerds Working it's mostly on AI. nerds. Great. It's mostly nerds working on AI, talking about AI, discussing about AI. Sometimes we eat, but <laughs> we code all the time. Either you like it or not. I don't know. I mean, you, you come from research from the university. So how much do you, have you brought from that, from the things you learned there, from that environment into the company? In that sense, like my co-founders, uh, JC and I, we have very, very different views. So yeah. he's more like the enterprise like, he would be like the enterprise edition software, and I would be like the research open source free software for everyone. So we have different views of things. Um, How does that combine? We argue a lot. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Let's talk about that. Uh, but basically, so he, he, he's more like pattern-oriented, yeah. and he likes to work on trade secrets and IP and all that stuff. And I'm more like research-oriented. We do... We, went, we go to, to conferences, we attend them, we present papers, we want to improve state of art. So it's very different profiles. So I think between the two, we sometimes argue and we get to something that makes sense for the company. So you're two co-founders, as I think. Yes. Um, that creates a lot of times in 50-50, right? You're one person against the other, and there's that. He wins. He's more stubborn. He always right. wins. Okay, no, so that's I'm how kidding. you resolve the, conver the conversation. Oh, right, no. How do you do it? Because we, we don't very often talk about arguing with co-founders. I mean, it can be for a good thing and not necessarily for a really bad thing. But like strategy, for instance, or fundraising, when's the, when's the good time? Well, we need to hire more people. No, we're not selling enough. How do you resolve these things usually? We argue, but sometimes I have the feeling that arguing has a very bad connotation. And arguing doesn't mean bad. Sometimes means that you care. Yeah. And we were both people very, very passionate about what you were doing. And so since once you're passionate about what you're doing, you also become passionate about your ideas. And it's, it's, it's very easy to argue about what you think is best. Because at the end, we always want what we think is best for the company, just as sometimes... We have different views. He's the CEO, so he has final decision on a lot of things. So it's kind of like one level above you in that sense. Like you're no, but, okay. but we, I think uh, we have a lot of arguments, uh, and we always find middle ground. All right. Um, I, wa I wanted to ask, I wanted to go back, circle back, circle back a little bit to why to expand to Barcelona, because a couple of people from the audience asked me, can you ask the reason why? And you said, okay, it's because we wanted to go back there. But the first reason that one can come up with is budget. It's cheaper. Everybody moves to Barcelona because it's cheaper. How did that, that affect your decision as well, or that was not part of the plan? At that moment, it didn't affect because we're not thinking that yeah. far away. Uh, in retrospect, yes, it is cheaper. Uh, but I, I go back to the same thing. So it's about uh, who you're competing with when you're attracting talent. So in Silicon Valley, I would, I would be competing against 1,000 different cool projects on AI. In Europe, there are not that many. Yeah. So it's not about the salary or if it's expensive or not. It's about you want those, those developers that are one out of 1,000, mm -hmm. the very good ones, the very, very, very good ones. And if you have to share with a very big community of startups that they do deep AI, it's going to be very difficult. But in our case, since we have this 
since we're here, there are not that many. So mm -hmm. we get a lot of people coming from Europe. We get a lot of people from Spain that are looking to, they really care about AI and they want to do big AI projects. So they come to us because there are not so many startups that we, that we compete with. Coming from you know, a company that was based in the Valley and expanding to here, you must have very, very different visions because the rhythm there, the pace there is so frenetic. It's really intense all the time. Whereas here's a little bit more, you know, chill. How do people take it? How, how many people have you got there? And how is it, is it easy to manage? Because JC is based there, if I remember correctly, mm -hmm. right? Um, how, how do you balance that in the company? The fact that they, one of the co-founders is in the US, so nine hours, 10 hours difference, and probably having another rhythm that you've got here in Barcelona. I wouldn't say that here the rhythm is less, like, I think, usually I tend to think that Palo Alto or like uh, Silicon Valley, they have very good working hours. Yeah. Because they... I'm just not meaning that. They're just kind of more business oriented. They tend to take decisions very fast. Whereas here we're more like, yeah, I'll postpone this decision to like next month. No, that doesn't happen. Okay, doesn't happen so in your company. I d no, I don't <laughs> think lucky. that. I don't think that happens to us. We're 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 really quick at taking decisions. Um, I don't think we have a different pace. I think uh, most of the problems are mo mostly like how do you organize? Because we have also people uh, in Taipei, so sometimes right. like finding the right meeting time when you have. US, Barcelona, and Taipei, it's just impossible. It doesn't work. Somebody has to be in a call at 1 a.m. or 2. But apart from that. Right. A bit of quick questions before we open up the floor for, for other people's questions. Like, what has been your worst day at the office as a founder? I think. We like to open up here. Worst day at the office. Something you really struggle with, and you, take, you took a, like a terrible decision, or sometimes like it's not, it's not exactly the question you asked, but uh, like one of like my 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 biggest problems is when somebody from the team, like people that you respect a lot, and they're a team lead, and you rely on them a lot, they come to you and they look at you like you have all the answers. Yeah, they look at you like I'm gonna ask you, I don't know what's What's the future? What are we going to be doing in one year or two years? And they're looking at you like you, you must have all the answers, right? But you don't have them. It's most of the time it's like you're taking guesses as educated as you can and you're sharing with the team and you're open for ideas. So maybe that's the path, but maybe it isn't. So one of the moments that I struggle mostly with is when people look at you and they're expecting you to have the right perfect answer for any single problem that there might be, you know? And they're like, I mean, I'm just trying to lead this thing, but... We're a startup just trying to figure <laughs> out every day? I, I don't have the perfect solution for everything, so we're going to just keep figuring out as we go. Yeah. Um, we have a vision in one year, maybe not in five years, because I think that's bullshit in my personal opinion, but the next 12 months, something like that. What's yeah, your you, vision for the company? Of course, of course. Right. You always have a vision for one year. You have a three-year yeah. plan. You have a five-year plan that nobody believes in. No, yeah. You, you have all these things because you, you need to have them. Yeah. But you are not, you don't, that doesn't mean like, it's still your plan. Yeah. So I might have a plan for the next one year. Yes. And it might occur or it might not because I don't control the world. I don't control that, I don't know, the sales cycle is not going to, I don't control if it's going to be uh dropping to have the time or not. I don't control it. So there are many things that I don't have access to. So you plan the best you can, but that doesn't mean that you have a certainty of 100% that this is what's going to happen. Yeah. So you just go and play with it and see what it, what it takes you. And one of the things that I struggle mostly with is when people, and or maybe sometimes like even VCs, they look at you and they're like, give me your, th your three-year plan. I'm like, okay, so I have plan A, B, C, D, and I don't even know. Which one is going to happen? It depends. So but sometimes, you've got them, yeah? Yeah, you've got them, but, but a plan means nothing. Like, like we always say that paper stands everything. Yeah. Like you, can, you can write whatever you want on paper. You can have any plan you want, but that doesn't mean it's going to get real. Mm -hmm. So you, you plan, you plan four different ones, and you think that you're going to be adapting, but you don't have all the answers. Plans are useless. Planning is essential, they say. What's your most expensive fuck-up? 
the thing you have lost more money with. I mean, in the company. There have been some misunderstandings. <laughs> Mistakes were made. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think once we had, we had kind of this. I'm not gonna say I'm not gonna say a company, but we were sponsored by one very important company, mm -hmm. and they said, you know, we're giving you free access to this cloud that we have. So it's one of the ones that have clouds. Yeah. You can use as many machines as you want. And again, I have a bunch of nerds and geeks playing and having a lot of stuff. How many hundreds did you use? So as many as we could. And then in three days, Amazon was down. They kicked us out and we said we had burned the whole like uh, the whole budget they had for startups in three years. What, what, what did you compute there? Like what were you using that for? We're trying to calculate like the projection of the universe. And... Nobody stated the limit, so no, no, yeah. We assumed that they would limit us at some point, and it was everything happened like really quick. Like in 24 hours, we had already fucked up. So it's not like we had a lot of time to react. We're right. like, we're just gonna leave this training, and then we'll see how it's gonna go in the morning, and then you go in the morning after, and boom, boom, mistakes were It's not their fault. It's their fault. You mentioned that you were learning some things about management and talking to people, and I assume that you might have read some books that you want to recommend to the audience. Because we don't get a lot of book recommendation, but uh... I have not. Ah, oh, okay. I'm sorry. In AI, maybe. Oh, in AI. <laughs> a lot of people are here, and they're like, hey, "What? What is AI?" Right? Uh, like me. It's really, really difficult to recommend AI books. All right. For uh, non-technical people, I assume. So. Okay, so management books, I don't read them. I, I don't read them. I tried twice. I didn't succeed. I couldn't. They're boring. Well, so, so there are two types. So yeah. there are the ones that I don't understand. All right. And there are the ones that just state obvious things over and over. And you're like, I mean, that's common sense. But do they say common things because you have already done them? Because you are. You know, you're some years into your management I mean, career. I don't need to read a book that says delegate. I know I have to delegate. Yeah, all right. Yeah. So sometimes it's like, What kind okay. of books are you reading? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and then I think, I'm sure there are, there are good ones. Uh, but, I mean, you can read OKR, OKRs, and you can read all these management styles, and you can read um, the, like, I, 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 maybe I've, I've read a bit about how to organize teams. All right. How you can organize teams that work well together. Um, but I don't, I don't think that there is a solution that works for everyone. So I've seen like OKRs. I've seen them greatly implemented, poorly implemented. I've seen people having great success. I've seen the worst things having, that have been done under the OKR uh, like management style. And the same thing happens for squats, for... Mm -hmm. A lot of things, like everything can go well and everything can go wrong, and at the end is what is the best thing that's going to work for your team, and you don't know until you talk to them and you try and you figure out stuff as you go. In our case, like what really worked well for me is that uh, I have, we have in, in the, the team is divided in, in five big teams, and each of them has two team leads. Mm -hmm. So it's a democracy. So whenever right. a decision has to be taken, it's my vote against their two votes, so they can win any battle they want against me. All right. Kind of like your co-founder. Yeah. Yeah, but we are 50-50, and in, this, in that case, like, like the team leads can, can, uh, can plan together, and they can win me at any single decision they want. So that really helped us, but I think it's, it depends on, on the team and the kind of people you have. I mean, maybe I have experience in management, because most of the management uh, books they don't care that much whether you're managing uh, an engineering team or a sales team or a That's product right. team. And they have nothing. Nothing applicable, maybe. Yeah, they're not, they have nothing like, that's applicable to, to your sales team that you can apply to the engineering team. They don't, they don't answer the same way. You can ask them. I mean, I can give like, a, a handbook manual to my engineering team. They're not going to read it. 
Yeah. And maybe the sales team, they're going to follow it like every single step. And if they don't have the playbook, then it's a big deal. But the engineers, they don't want you to. T so I don't know. I don't know the recipe that works for everyone. So you just, you just try. Last question from me. It's, we've talked about the thing that you're ashamed of, but let's talk about your superpowers. So, but not normal superpowers. At Starbrand, we wrap up our interviews with, ask, uh, with asking about the useless superpower. Everybody has got a useless superpower, which is something you do every day a lot of times. Works exceptionally well, but it's freaking useless. Can I get an example? Yeah, for instance, like I know a lot of songs that I've never listened to actively just because I retain them from radios and stuff, but they are not my style. But I don't know the lyrics to the songs I love. That's a pretty okay. useless one. Okay. Our last guest said, I can play yo-yo very well. That's pretty useless as well. Okay. I mean, yeah. Having like the popcorn thing would have been a great one. <laughs> but you have used that card. You got to come okay. up with something else. Let me think. <laughs> Oh, I'm pretty obsessed with plants. With? With plants. So plants, I have yeah. this map of when you can get seeds from any single tree here in Barcelona. So I store like when the different seeds, they, 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 give, they get seeds so you can retrieve them and then plant them. So I have this really crazy map that I've been building for like maybe 10 years. So every time that I find a seed, I'm like, oh, this one I don't have. So I'm going to put it in my map. I'm going to take note. This like happens in February, so next year I know where to come, and so that's my useless thing. Someday this is going to be worth millions. In the meantime, it's pretty useless, and that's a very good answer. <laughs> so please give it up for Elisenda. <laughs>an all-remote consultancy from Barcelona, specializing in web and mobile development. We help all kinds of companies, from startups to big corporations, to conceptualize, design, and develop solutions for their business using technology. And now, how can we help you?